This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for July 29th, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Robert Wayne discusses contentious issues in wolf genetics. And Davy Shastri is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Davy Shastri, an intern for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on a human-bird bond. The greater honey guide bird is just that, a bird that guides one to honey. Who are they guiding to honey, and how do they get to it, Davy? The birds are guiding humans, hunters who live, for example, in Mozambique, like the Yao honey hunters, which is where this most recent study was performed. There's also a hunter-gatherer group in Tanzania, where the Hadza group demonstrates a similar relationship with the birds. The partnership has been around for millennia and helps both the humans and honey guides get food. The birds respond to a very specific call from their human friends, and then they lead the hunters to a hive where they can harvest honey. After the human has eaten to their heart's content, they leave the wax for the birds to eat, sometimes on a nice little bed of leaves. This isn't just one well-trained bird and its human owner. This is a long-lasting behavior across many birds, and researchers have backed this up with some numbers. Right. This is not just a relationship between one trade honey guide, honey guide and humans, like would be the case with a messenger pigeon or an animal that's trained to do a task. Evolutionary biologists suggest that this is probably a relationship that has been built between the birds and the hunters for over generations of evolution. When the researchers observed what they call a guiding event, which is exactly what it sounds like, the birds guide the hunters to a nest or several nests, they noted that the different honey guides were responding to the calls and taking up the task of steering humans to the nest. So this isn't just one bird. It's a group of birds that are working with the humans to get what they need. And while the partnership has been observed over the years, when the researchers actually sat down and quantified it, they found that the hunter-honey guide duo is successful three out of four times. Hmm. And then in a more recent study, researchers wanted to know more about the calls that are used between these uh, people and the honey hunters. 
What did they do to, to figure out which signals were important? This study was, as one researcher put it, um, elegantly simple. It was just a set of controlled experiments. The researchers tracked down a group of honey guides and over 72 trials and about 50 guiding events. They watched how the birds responded to either a specific call from the hunters or an unrelated call from the hunters or a dove song. When they got the proper call from the researchers, the birds guided them 66% of the time and over 80% of those trips successfully led to a nest. When they used an unrelated call, the guiding only happened half as often and they were much less likely to lead the researchers to a nest with honey in it. So evolutionarily speaking, this makes sense. The birds will save their energy and reap more from their efforts if they focus on calls from willing hunters. What about the calls that the hunters are making? We've been talking about evolution. Is this call passed down from bird to bird over time? It turns out that these birds are probably speaking the same language as the humans are. They're very specific calls. And these birds are literally understanding that the human call is a message about what they should do that will result in them getting some food. That's why the most interesting thing about all of this is that we don't know how they're learning the language. Honey guides like cuckoos or cowbirds are brood parasites. They lay their eggs in the nests of other birds. This means that the babies are not being raised by their honey guide parents who would theoretically pass on the knowledge to their children. So how generations of honey guides know of the relationship between themselves and hunters is and might always be a mystery. Next up, we have a story on our last common ancestor. Our last universal common ancestor, or LUCA, is the one organism that all life on Earth is related to, kind of like a microbial Eve that has left traces in modern life forms. But this has proven difficult to find. Why is that, Davy? Scientists believe that we're all evolved from single-cell organisms or prokaryotes. These little guys are very simple in the way that they are built. They usually don't have any membrane-bound organelles, which are cell organs, and have pretty small genomes. But they're smart in making up for that, which, of course, makes a researcher's job even harder. Prokaryotes, like bacteria, do more than just pass their genes on to their offspring which are usually really just clones of themselves, assuming nothing goes wrong. They can also transfer genes with other prokaryotes through a process called horizontal gene transfer. That means if you're trying to analyze the genetic material of a prokaryote, you run the risk of mistaking something they got from another species as something they share with others through evolution. In order to get around this, the researchers had to look at two types of bacteria and compare it with two types of archaea, another type of prokaryote, to make sure that they were looking at genes that have carried on over generations. So they were trying to look back in time by analyzing the genes of these prokaryotes, but unfortunately there's a lot of mixing that goes on. So they wanted to separate out what was transferred versus what was actually passed down. And then they compared sequences and filtered out some things. And they ended up with how many genes or gene families to home in on? They ended up with 6 million genes grouped <laughs> oh. into 286,000 related gene families. But then they homed in even more. Further analysis found that only 355 of these gene families were broadly distributed across all modern organisms. So they could be tracked from an ancestral species through all of its descendants. 
That made the 355 gene families likely LUCA candidates. Okay, so what kinds of genes do we have left over from LUCA, and what can they tell us about it? The 355 LUCA genes aren't random in what they do. In fact, they all seem to play a role in metabolism, and the gene analyses tell us that LUCA was an anaerobic hydrogen gas breather, something that not many microbes today can claim about themselves. The genes also show that LUCA was almost certainly a heat-loving thermophile. Going back to what we know about way back then, does this profile of LUCA match up pretty well with what we know about early Earth? Yeah. What we know about LUCA can tell us a lot about how life was when it was around 4 billion years ago. It backs up a lot of what scientists believe about the early Earth, with genes that let it survive in a world of heat, heavy meteorite bombardment, and seas that periodically boiled away. It survived under an oxygen-free atmosphere, and because it couldn't make its own hydrogen gas, it got what it needed from underwater volcanoes. The world was inhospitable to a lot of the life we see today, so this glimpse into how LUCA may have survived can, in addition to telling us more about the organism itself, confirm a lot about what we think the early years of our planet looked like and how life evolved to what it is today. Last up, we have a story on a new source for antibiotics. The world is running out of antibiotics, but what if a source of these life-saving drugs has been right under our noses all along, Mm -hmm. or in our noses? A new study suggests that bacteria that live in the human nose may be a source of a new drug. Okay, Davey, how did this come about, looking at people's noses, looking at the bacteria in there? Now, these researchers certainly didn't go far from home when looking for the latest (laughs) cure. They actually took the idea that the bacteria we already have living inside of us are able to keep one another in check. It may sound gross, but they looked at nasal secretions, you know, snot, and found that in a third of people, one of the bacteria living in there was Staphylococcus aureus. It's usually harmless, but can be deadly in some forms. But they also found another bacteria, Staphylococcus lugdunensis, which, in the nutrient-poor world of the inside of a person's nose, was doing a pretty darn good job of keeping Staph aureus at bay. These two were in a competition for the survival of the fittest. But Lugdunensis had an advantage over aureus. It was making a drug against its opponent. Right, and it is not very nutrient-rich up there in the nose. (laughs) No, not at all. It's basically a little water, a little salt. That's all you get. That's all you get. So basically, the second bacteria, Lugdunensis, was making an antibiotic. Yep. The researchers found that the bacterium produced an antibiotic compound. They named the chemical Lugdunin and succeeded in synthesizing it in a lab. The antibiotic inhibited Staph aureus from growing in a Petri dish. And when they put it on the skin of mice infected with Staph aureus, it reduced or even eradicated the infection. And what about MRSA? I mean, the resistant form of this bacteria that kind of haunts hospitals. At this point, it looks like the antibiotic works against MRSA, which doesn't respond to the more common methicillin treatment. In an experiment lasting 30 days, Staph aureus didn't evolve a resistance to the drug. This is a big deal, considering MRSA is responsible for 10,000 U.S. deaths a year. Staph aureus alone can also be life-threatening if it poisons a person's blood, which is also referred to as sepsis. But it's still pretty early to say anything long-term, as every antibiotic before has run into resistance problems. This sounds great. Look through people, maybe other animals, and see which bacteria are killing other bacteria, and then leverage that interaction to discover new antibiotics. Are there any drawbacks to this approach 
there are definitely people who are more skeptical. It's still quite early, and some are worried that messing with the balance of bacterial interaction could be dangerous. It could cause problems like we see with the gut microbiome. When something gets out of balance, you end up being sick. Others are also not convinced that there's a drug out there that can prevent resistance. It could work for a while, but there's always a chance for bad news if Staph aureus ends up evolving against this drug. Okay, what else is on the site this week, Davey? We have a story on Neanderthal baby brains and heart disease in astronauts. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on a new poll that shows that the majority of Americans are worried about gene editing and a sex discrimination case against the University of Cincinnati. Thanks, Davey. Thank you, Sarah. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Jimmy's back with me to talk about Blue Apron again. (laughs) And last time we talked about this, you brought up the idea of giving Blue Apron as a gift. Um, A couple of my friends had babies recently. And when you have a baby, you are too exhausted to do literally anything, let alone shop and then meal prep. Blue Apron's a really great idea, I think, because it comes to the house. Everything's all pretty much ready to go for you. You might have to do a little slicing and dicing, but it's all portioned out and it comes with instructions so that you can cook yourself a nice home-cooked meal. I do like to taste new foods, but what I don't like to do is buy an ingredient I'm only going to use a tiny amount of and then it's just going to sit in my cabinet Mm. forever. Yeah, you got to buy four pounds of brewer's yeast to make yourself a really nice biscuit and then you end up just throwing the whole thing in the garbage two weeks later. Who needs it? Four pounds of brewer's yeast. That's not a true story, but it's a very true story. (laughs) All right. So for less than $10, Brew Apron basically gives you everything in the recipe, a seasonal recipe, pre-portioned, so you're not wasting anything, and it's very inexpensive. Yeah. It's a great way to expose yourself to things like spinach and basil pesto gnocchi with summer squash, green beans, and fresh mozzarella. This is from the July menu. You could get some, some spiced pork tacos with avocado pickled onion and elote-style corn. And there's also a very summery, summer vegetable pizza with garlic, lemon, broccolini in this July's offerings. I love broccolini. It's the best thing ever if you can't decide between asparagus and broccoli. Okay, definitely check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. That's blueapron.com slash S-C-I-E-N-C-E-M-A-G. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron. A better way to cook. The Endangered Species Act, a 1973 U.S. law designed to protect animals in the country from extinction, They might need a little freshening up. The focus on species is the problem. This has become especially clear when it comes to wolves. Recent genetic information has led to government agencies moving to delist the gray wolf. Robert Wayne is here to untangle the wolf family tree and talk us through how a better understanding of wolf genetics may trouble their protected status. Can we start with the wolves at play here? What kinds of wolves are there in the United States? Well, there's two somewhat opposing theories. The first is that the only two wolf-like forms in North America are the gray wolf, which has a old world origin and then had migrated tens of thousands of years ago into North America, and the coyote. 
and that those are the two principal species of wolf-like canids. But there is a, a second opinion that maybe there are as many as four species, and the two additional ones are the red wolf, which has a long history, described hundreds of years ago to begin with, and the red wolf lived in the American South, basically, South and Southeast. And it was an intermediate-sized canid, in between gray wolf and coyote, and has its own species designation. More recently, about 15 years ago, a second supposed wolf-like species was described in eastern Canada, called the eastern wolf or the Algonquin wolf, and it was intermediate in size as well. And so these are the two other wolf-like species that are thought maybe to have a unique North American origin from a coyote-like ancestor, and so they're endemic North American wolves that deserve special consideration. As you mentioned, previous studies have suggested this might, these might all be distinct species, that red wolves and eastern wolves have plenty of unique DNA that show their independence from gray wolves for a very long time. Your work tells a different story. What happens when you sequence a bunch of wolf genomes? Well, all the previous studies uh, never sequenced an entire genome. And we realized that in canid sequencing, the full genome of about 2.1 billion base pairs is going to provide us with much information than even studies that use tens of thousands of markers. We're looking at millions of differences. And when we do that, we find that actually there's no evidence for a distinct red wolf or eastern wolf, that they both appear to be admixtures of simply gray wolves and coyotes. And we've done this extensively now, and we've searched these genomes exhaustively for traces of what might be unique ancestry. Just like if you took a human from Eurasia, you'd find evidence of ancestry from Neanderthals, about 1% to 4% of Eurasian genomes derived from Neanderthals. Well, that's what we were looking for. And we didn't really find any evidence. We were thinking maybe 20 or 30% of their genomes might come from a distinct species, and we couldn't find that. I thought this point was really interesting, that there's a gradation of coyote mixture in the United States. Can you talk about how that relates to the history of the wolves in this country? Our hypothesis is that it is a historical process in the sense that the red wolf formed when there were gray wolves and coyotes in the American South a few hundred years ago. And as gray wolves became rarer, they were hunted to extinction, there was habitat changes as Europeans colonized and agriculture developed, and there were bounties placed on gray wolves. So as gray wolves became increasingly rare, their only option for mating was with coyotes. And so we believe that's when admixture between the two species began and was in full force by the turn of the last century. As a result, Admixed individuals were formed. They were intermediate in size between gray wolf and coyotes. And the first explorers mistook the uh, intermediate-sized individuals for a separate species, the red wolf. After the 1900s, gray wolves went extinct entirely. They were completely extirpated in the American South. And so there were only coyotes and admixed individuals left. And so there was more mixture with coyotes. And in the end, in the present day, when the red wolf program was founded, the individuals they capture and use to establish the program have about 25% gray wolf and 75% coyote. We think that more recently, a similar process occurred in the Great Lakes area. There were only gray wolves in that area until about the 1920s, and then gray wolves were almost eliminated from parts of Minnesota and elsewhere. Coyotes came in, admixed with gray wolves, and formed a very similar admixture zone. But that admixture zone never went to completion. That is, there were always gray wolves there, and it's more recent. So when we look at the so-called eastern wolves there, we find they have much more gray wolf in them, 75% gray wolf instead of 25%.
So in that zone, we can still kind of recover the gray wolf by potentially management actions. Uh, And here we go. Let's bring it back to the Endangered Species Act. Why might knowing more about these wolves' genetic background influence their protected status? Well, under the four species hypothesis, the red wolf is protected. It's listed as an endangered species. The eastern wolf is not protected. It was never listed. It was only recognized 15 years ago. Under the admixture hypothesis that's advanced in our paper, well, the red wolf um, is an uncertain category because actually admixed individuals or hybrids are not protected under the Act. There's no official recognition of hybrids as protected entities, even when they're mixtures of an endangered species and a non-endangered species. So therein is the problem. There needs to be consideration of what to do with admixed individuals. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has already looked into doing this. This isn't something that they're completely unaware of. Yes. I mean, they've brought in their lawyers and the solicitors published an opinion in 1991 called the so-called intercross policy in the official arm of the, the U.S. government, the Federal Register and suggested a way forward with how to deal with admixed individuals. And uh, they never really acted on it. So they just kind of need to follow up what they had started. And then we can still preserve the red wolf and actually what goes on in in the Great Lakes area. We can still preserve them because red wolves have this 25% gray wolf that no longer exists in the wild. It was a distinct population likely in the American South. And the gray wolf is protected. And similarly, in the Great Lakes area, there's 75% gray wolf. The gray wolf is listed. It's a protected entity. And those hybrids could be preserved. And we could even encourage, through management actions, an increasing proportion of gray wolf in those populations by, say, establishing more areas for preservation, pristine, that have large game. And that might favor the gray wolf composition. One thing you you mentioned you wanted to make very clear in our earlier exchanges was that you're not looking to change this law, repeal this law, but rather make sure that it takes into account the actual on-the-ground experience of the animals that it's interested in protecting. Exactly right. We have protected admixed individuals, like the Florida puma. That is a distinct subspecies, Corii. But when it was analyzed genetically, it was found it had components from Central and South American pumas that they had been introduced sometime in the past. They used that. To, it's an admixed population and wasn't reproducing. So they introduced pumas from Texas to kind of genetically rescue the population. And they brought in six females. And that's exactly what happened. There was no reproduction in the population. But those six females gave birth to viable offspring. And their descendants are what really populate the whole population now. So they admitted it was admixed. And they boiled individuals from another subspecies. So there's plenty of flexibility under the law. And there's all kinds of situations where admixed individuals are generated. So there's all kinds of situations from plants to animals where hybridization is occurring and needs some acknowledgement under the Endangered Species Act. Thanks so much for talking with me, Robert. You're welcome. Good luck on the show. Robert Wayne is a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of California, Los Angeles. He and his colleagues write about wolf genomes in a Science Advances paper this week. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. 
I'm Sarah Crespi on behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS. Thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.